Stevenson Harwood Pensions team. You can subscribe and listen on iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. I'm Stephen Richards, a partner in the pensions team, and I have with me Naeem Noor, a senior associate in the team. Today we're going to talk about some of the key pensions law developments up to the end of August 2018. Naeem, there's been an important case on pension scams recently which trustees should take note of. What was that about? In a groundbreaking determination last month, the Pensions Ombudsman directed the Northumbria Police Authority to reinstate the benefits of Mr N, a former member of the Police Pension Scheme. Mr N was the victim of a pension scam and stood to lose all of the 112000 that had, on his instruction, been transferred from his scheme. However, his complaint was against the scheme rather than the scammers. Mr N sought the reinstatement of his benefits under the scheme on the basis that he would not have gone ahead with the transfer had the police pension scheme not failed to conduct adequate checks on the receiving scheme prior to the transfer and provide him with sufficient warning about pension scams, in particular the pension regulator's scorpion leaflet. The authority contested the complaint and argued that Mr N would have gone ahead with the transfer even if it had provided him with the scorpion leaflet. It had not engaged with Mr N during the transfer process because he had instructed and authorised the authority to deal with his IFA. It did not have a duty to protect members from their own bad decisions and it considered that it had the benefit of a statutory discharge of further liability to Mr N once his entitlements under the police pension scheme had transferred. The pensions ombudsman disagreed with the authority, giving three notable reasons. The first one... The transfer was requested nine months after the pensions regulator's pension liberation fraud guidance was issued. In the Ombudsman's opinion, the February 2013 guidance was a watershed moment, after which the standard of due diligence to be expected of pension scheme trustees, managers and administrators when processing transfer requests escalated considerably. Number two, even though a member should be free to make what many may consider to be a bad decision, the Ombudsman did not consider that this meant there was no responsibility on the transferring schemes, trustees or managers. In the Ombudsman's view, there were red flag factors that should have prompted suspicion about the receiving scheme and triggered the authority to make further inquiries of Mr N and the receiving scheme. The third reason the Ombudsman gave was that the authority could not rely on the statutory discharge because it had failed to comply with the statutory requirement to do what is needed to carry out what the member requires in relation to the transfer. The Ombudsman determined that what is needed included taking into account the law and regulatory guidance and what the member requires could only be established by ensuring that the appropriate due diligence was carried out any warnings or concerns identified and brought to the attention of the member, and that the member then went ahead with the transfer on a fully informed basis. The Ombudsman concluded that the authority had applied an inadequate due diligence process and warning system, and that this amounted to maladministration. Consequently, it was necessary to put the member in the position he would have been in had the maladministration not occurred. This is the first determination we have seen where the Ombudsman has directed a transferring scheme to reinstate a member's benefits as a result of a receiving scheme being a scam arrangement. Various elements of the determination will be somewhat alarming to pension scheme trustees. In particular, the Ombudsman's interpretation of the statutory discharge for transferring trustees suggests that a substantial number of checks are needed before the discharge can apply. This is a very broad interpretation of the statutory discharge wording which we consider could be open to challenge. In cases of pension fraud, 
It may be impossible for a victim to take action against the scammers, as he will likely have fled with the assets. For a distressed member seeking redress, the only identifiable target with means is often the transferring scheme. Notwithstanding the understandable distress of Mr N, who lost his pension to a scam, the irony of this determination is that it will likely make transferring schemes a softer target for claims arising from the damage caused by pension fraudsters snaring unwitting individuals in their scams. Trustees and managers of pension schemes should reconsider their transfer processes to ensure all reasonable legal and practical steps are taken to minimise the risk of transfers being made to a scam arrangement and former members successfully claiming reinstatement of their benefits at the cost of the transferring scheme. Thanks, Naeem. I know a number of trustees have been concerned that this sort of decision could happen. It will be interesting to see whether this is the new direction of travel or whether cases are more protective trustees. The DWP has now finished consulting on a topic which I find particularly interesting, the environmental, social and governance or ESG factors affecting pension schemes. The 2017 Law Commission report on pension funds and social investment received a lot of attention when it suggested that ESG factors should be considered by trustees if financially relevant. The DWP consultation looked to clarify and strengthen pension scheme trustees' investment duties and sought views on proposed changes to existing investment and disclosure regulations, which are designed to help dispel trustee confusion and give institutional investors renewed confidence, if they so choose, to begin or increase the allocation of capital to investment opportunities such as unlisted firms, green finance and social impact investment. The proposed changes could have far-reaching implications for trustees' investment decisions, including replacing the existing legislative requirement that a scheme statement of investment principles, or its SIP, must take into account social, environmental or ethical considerations in the selection, retention and realisation of scheme investments. Instead, the SIP would need to set out how the trustees take account of financially material considerations, which will include those arising from environmental, social and governance considerations, specifically including climate change. The SIP would need to state the trustees' policy on stewardship of investments in relation to things like monitoring, engagement and voting. Trustees would need to prepare a statement which sets out the extent to which they will take account of views held by members in relation to matters covered by the SIP when preparing or updating the SIP. The views would be ones which, in the trustees' opinion, members hold on both financial and non-financial matters and that may be relevant to the trustees' investment and stewardship decisions. Trustees would need to pair an annual implementation report which sets out how they have acted on the principles set out in the SIP and on the statement of members' views. Subject to a few exceptions, trustees of schemes which provide money purchase benefits and which are required to have a SIP would be required to publish their SIP, Statement of Members' Views and Annual Implementation Report online. These documents would also need to be referred to in Members' Annual Benefit Statements. The new requirements concerning the contents of the SIP and the requirement to publish it online are expected to come into effect on 1st October next year. The obligation to prepare a Statement of Members' Views and to publish it online is intended to apply when the SIP is next updated after 1st October 2019, and the requirement to publish an annual implementation report is not expected to come into effect till 1st October 2020. Thanks, Stephen. Just to consider another interesting pensions ombudsman decision which was given recently. 
In this case, the Ombudsman reiterated that reasons must be given for the exercise of a discretion, which provides useful guidance as to the formal decision-making process that should be carried out when exercising a discretion. In this case, the administrator of a SIP had been directed to reconsider a decision it had made in relation to the death benefit to be awarded to Dr G, who was the partner of a deceased member. The original decision had found that Dr G was not entitled to a pension from the scheme, albeit that she satisfied the test for financial interdependency and was also eligible for a lump sum benefit as an eligible recipient under the scheme rules. On reconsidering the decision, the scheme administrator again found that all death benefits should be paid to the deceased's estate and not to Dr G. The pensions ombudsman held that, whilst the administrator did not need to prepare a lengthy written document detailing the rationale for its decision, it should set out the factors that had a material impact on its decision and also the factors that were discounted. The SIP administrator in this case had not done this, and there was no evidence of a rational decision-making process which supported the ultimate conclusion reached. As a result, the pensions ombudsman directed the scheme administrator to reconsider his decision, properly considering all factors and prepare a written document to this effect. Stephen, I notice you recently wrote an article raising some interesting points about the recent British Airways decision. Can you tell us what that was about? Certainly. Recently, British Airways successfully challenged a discretionary pension increase granted by the trustees of the Airways Pension Scheme. However, the challenge may have created uncertainty on the scope of seemingly explicit trustee powers and opened the door to further challenges of trustee decision-making by sponsoring employers. In this particular case, the trustees of the Airways Pension Scheme had the sole power to amend the scheme. They used that power to give themselves the ability to review and at their discretion pay increases to members' pensions. And they decided to grant an increase to level up the difference between CPI and RPI for that particular year. British Airways challenged the introduction of the power and the increase, and the Court of Appeal upheld BA's challenge and held that the trustees had, in essence, added the role of paymaster to their existing responsibilities as managers of the scheme. They said the trustees' use of the amendment power to allow pensions to be increased was an improper purpose, going beyond the purpose for which the amendment power was intended to be used. The Court of Appeal's decision seems to stem from a view that benefit design is a matter for the employer and not the trustees. However, it could equally be argued that where trustees exercise a power which results in an increase to pensions... They're not acting as a paymaster or fundamentally changing benefit design. This is because pension increases are not actually a new pension benefit. They are simply protecting existing pension benefits against inflation. If that logic holds, then trustees who exercise a discretion to apply increases to pensions, or, by extension, who incorporate a rule in the scheme they manage allowing them to apply pension increases, are arguably not altering the benefit design and not acting as paymaster. Even if adding a power to allow trustees to choose pension increase levels is acting as a paymaster, it may still be considered to be within the scope of a trustee's powers. Although the BA case is unusual in that the Airways Pension Scheme gave the trustees a unilateral power to amend, many schemes give trustees sole discretion when it comes to exercising other of their powers, including in relation to pension increases or in the selection of the appropriate index to use for increases, 
It feels to me like this case has more distance left to run. Thanks, Stephen. That's all for this month's podcast. Thanks for listening. We hope you found the podcast informative. And don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud or on the Stevenson Harwood website. Mm-hmm.